This is an ABC podcast. Okay, now we're just coming up to the intersection nice and gently slowing down. It's a stop sign, which means you have to bring the vehicle to a complete stop. And when the path is clear ahead, out we go nice and gentle. Oh, you just sideswiped a Mercedes. Well, back to the depot for us. Who taught you how to drive? Wasn't me, that's for sure. I wouldn't be that calm when my kids are old enough to learn. Woo! Not looking forward to that day. I don't think I caused my parents too much trouble. Mum taught me to always slow down when you're approaching a corner and speed up on the way out. Uh... Dad took me for my first drive on an actual road with other cars. That was terrifying and exhilarating. My stepdad tried to teach me manual, but that lasted about 30 minutes. And then I remembered that we've solved the problem of needing manual cars by inventing automatic cars. So, yeah, it's all good. But we've all got tales to tell. Hey, Lois, who taught you to drive? I learned to drive on a Massey Ferguson tractor on the farm. So it was like, this is the clutch, this is what you got to do, and off you go. And I'm one of the unusual people that still like to drive a manual car. And I like to sit there as a boring middle-aged lady and then just drop it and take off. (laughs) (laughs) This is the Sammy J Snack Pack. Coming up today, we have a very grand hoax. It's a 50-year-old story about lost loot and a bomb on a plane. That's right, David Mahir Kanali's lawyer and amateur historian will be bringing us a sky-high tale. Plus... Musical theatre star Kirby Burgess is no stranger to the stage and stars in Cruel Intentions currently playing in Melbourne, the musical that's based on the 90s movie and incorporates 90s tunes, which is my sweet spot. But first up, it's journalist Ryan Shields to tell us about the petty grudge, the tiny grievance, the hill that he would die on. Look, the hill I'm prepared to die on is that Hollywood actor Tom Cruise is a wonderful actor and we are all lucky to be alive in the same time of human history that he is producing movies. Lucky. You have not dropped off the air. I'm giving this the silence it deserves. (laughs) That's okay. I like silence. And and I do corner people at parties about this. Normally (laughs) it spirals into this discussion. I don't start it, but I'm more than happy to take it on. No, let's go straight here because I I would have called myself a neutral to probably borderline negative view of, of Tom Cruise. What on earth is it about him that you think puts him above all other actors? So here's the thing. Well, I didn't say above all other Okay, actors, no, so, I, I okay. misspoke. I, I withdraw, Mr. No, no, no. Speaker. The high school debater in me wants to set the terms, all right? So he, he's no Daniel Day-Lewis. He's no Meryl Streep, okay. you know. He's not Philip Seymour Hoffman. May he rest in peace. So he's not the great classical actor. And he's a weird unit, right? Like, he's not a cool guy. He's, you know, by okay. some reports, not even a nice person. So, so far, we can agree on everything, right? Side. Okay. Yeah, this is it. Naomi Watts wouldn't even, you know, give up roast dinner at her mum's to have a night with him. So, you know, he doesn't tick the personal boxes, but, 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 on screen, the filmography, his actual job, the things that I engage with him on, Mm -hmm. the movies, they're phenomenal. Now, I would have said the same as you not long ago, right? Oh, I'm a bit neutral. Yeah, Tom Cruise, whatever. And then when I look through his films and I look through my life and my childhood, he's in basically every film I love through my whole life. Name them. Now, name a few good men right off the top. Aaron Sorkin, classic, right? Mm -hmm. Jerry Maguire, an understated, an understated classic. You know, there is comedy in there. There's everything. Rain Man, a bit mm-hmm. more serious, a bit more serious. Far and Away, not everyone's going to agree with Far and Away, but you plunge and you scrub. It's got a few great moments in there. 
And then he's had this whole later career as an action hero. Like, he's pushing 60 and he's still pumping out action films and he's doing all his own stunts. Edge of Tomorrow, very understated film from not that too many years ago. So what, look that one up if you haven't. What do you have to say to the allegations he was far too short to play Jack Reacher? Uh, well, uh, I had no relationship with the original tech, so the honest answer, mm-hmm. I don't care. Yeah. But here's the thing, I don't care. Like, <laughs> if he turns up on screen and delivers a performance, engages, plays a character, entertains me for 120 minutes, that's his job. That's all I want from the man. And as far as I'm concerned, he does it well. I will say, you reeling off those early films of his, uh, you know, they're, they're all classics. They're all known as great films. And so to take the totality, they probably predate the time of existence, though, when he became a bit of a joke figure, or, and even in many cases a bit of a sinister figure, though, don't they? Yeah, but they probably do. You're right. He, he probably had a lot more personal cred in those days. But but even now, like, you know, and... And I didn't reel them off. They're not my favourites. But the Mission Impossible films are coming and coming and coming. I sat down alone, a grown man alone in a cinema on Sunday night and watched Top Gun Maverick. Great night. Great night. Thoroughly entertaining. So he's still still absolutely performing at his peak. And I say again, we're grateful. We should be grateful for it. <laughs> so, so this is the point where this is the, the final sort of arrow or the, or the final sword fight on this hill because I can accept... Uh, and I can join your army when it comes to acknowledging that he's a talented actor who's had longevity, okay? But the need to be grateful for him, I'm not sure. Is, is that too much, right? Are you asking too much of us? Well, no, I don't think I am. Like, here's the thing, right? Yeah. Films films are there to serve us, okay? Right? They're there to make you happy, make you sad, make you emote, make you feel something, entertain you. And it does that. Like, if we can't be grateful for that, then what are we doing on this little speck in space? Yeah, walked in to do the written test with the learners. The bowel fail. So, yeah, then I went, all right, I'm not as smart as I think I am. I'm going to actually study. My mum taught me how to drive. And patience was the key thing, which I think a lot of people need to learn when they're learning to drive. Now, you mean Um, patience, like, right down to... When you're waiting at an intersection and waiting for a break, just take your time until it's safe. Don't try and be clever and sneak in. Yeah, like I was on my learner's test, exactly. The Snack Pack. The 1990s were, for me, the time of my life. During that decade, I went from being six years old to being 16 years old. So pretty much all my formative years, my brain took its form, for better or worse. My body took its form, for better or worse. But one thing we can all agree on that was for the better was the musical output of the artists creating and performing all around the world. And so many of those banging tracks have been brought together for Cruel Intentions, the musical currently playing in Melbourne, and starring Kirby... Burgess, who plays Catherine. Kirby, I have to ask, without being rude, uh, did you grow up with the music in this show? I grew up with the songs, yes. I didn't grow up with the film, so that mm-hmm. I don't know if that answers your question. No, I'll leave it, it up to the... Uh, <laughs> I was a little young to see I... the film, but the songs were definitely uh, my disco, blue light discos of the primary school years, yes. <laughs> how are the, um, <laughs> mine too, how are the audience ages reflecting that? Well, I think I think it's the perfect show for that, you know, late twenties to late forties kind of mm-hmm. age range. Uh, but I think it doesn't matter. I think even if you didn't grow up with the music, with the film, the show is so much fun. It is dark. It's dirty. It's sexy, um, but it's also really funny. I'm chatting to Kirby Burgess, star of Cruel Intentions, the 90s musical that is currently playing right here in Melbourne at the beautiful Athenaeum Theatre. We spoke to someone from the Athenaeum a few weeks ago about the resident ghost. Have you had any encounters with the ghost? I have not, and I'm I'm a big believer in 
in the supernatural, uh, so it freaks me oh, out. Sorry, um, have I just ruined the rest so of the season? <laughs> we can't talk about it because I'm refusing to believe. Okay. <laughs> no. I'll confess, it was just me wearing a white sheet spooking people out when I was doing something. Okay, that's okay. fair. Kirby, I, of course, have three hard-hitting journalistic questions to ask you now. Do you come prepared? Yes, I am ready. Okay, first question, uh, Kirby. What you seeing? Well, speaking of supernatural, I've just finished a series uh, called From on Stan, and honestly, I couldn't. I don't. Even, I, I can't even tell you what it's about. It's song, so like with, song with an what? S. No, sorry, From. Like, oh, where from. are you from? Yeah. Yes, uh, it is about a bunch of strangers that somehow find themselves in this town they can't get out of, and they are being taunted by these human-eating people <laughs> that come out at night and you don't know why they're there, you don't know where they are, and they don't know why they're there or where they are, and it's terrifying. And yeah. I'm one of those people that I do love watching scary movies, mm-hmm. but I must watch them. I must see the whole, if it's a series, I have to binge it because I have to know how it ends because I need to know that if I'm ever in that situation, that there is a possibility I will survive. (laughs) From, I'm going to check it out. And nice to know that's how you wind down after performing on stage. Yes, to scare the bejeebas out of myself. (laughs) Kirby, next question. What you hearing? Well, um, I have recently just gotten a hearing aid. For the first time in my life, um, I've, I was born with a hole in my eardrum. I've suffered hearing loss my whole life, and it's gotten particularly worse over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. So I finally ventured out and got myself a hearing aid. So what I'm hearing is all of these things that I never knew existed. First of all, Melbourne trams are quite an assault on your senses. <laughs> uh, Melbourne City itself is very loud, which I didn't realize, mm-hmm. but things like fridges. I'm, I'm contemplating whether I, I change careers and go into refrigeration because I cannot believe how loud they are. Wow. Just in general. How have people been living like this? So it's, 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 <laughs> are you finding it's much more those incidental background noises that suddenly you're tuning into now? Yes. Yes. That probably everybody else has tuned out by now mm. because your brain adjusts and you just get rid of that nonsense noise that is unnecessary. But for me, it's a whole new world of this is how how do you how do you concentrate with these noises around you? But it's definitely helping on stage. It's changed my life completely. Kirby, I've been asking uh, people what they've job. I've been asking people what they've been hearing uh, for you know a good couple of years now, and that is dead set the best answer to that question. So I'm very happy oh. to hear it. <laughs> oh well, I'm honoured. Thank you, uh, Kirby. Just finally, got to ask you, what's your tasting? Well, Melbourne. I mean, Melbourne City itself. The restaurants here are so delicious. I'm living right in the heart of the city as well. I find Melbourne City also really does a lot of Asian fusion restaurants beautifully. And a friend of mine has opened a restaurant called Rabada, which is a Japanese restaurant. It comes from the word Rabada Yaki. I hope I said that right, which is a charcoal grill technique. Uh, These are the creators of Pastuso, uh, the Peruvian very famous restaurant in Melbourne. Uh, They've got two others that are the same cuisine, but now they've ventured out into Japanese and it is delicious. It's the best Japanese restaurant I've been to. But one of my favorite things that they do is they do a pre-show sitting. So you can book a one hour sitting. They are guaranteed to get you out of there in an hour. Then it's a short walk to the Theatre District of Melbourne. It's a great atmosphere, great cocktails, the food. I can't 
Praise it enough. It is so delicious. Your answer was cultured. It included a Melbourne suck-up moment. It had a plug for a friend, and it also enabled people to see your show as well. That was the ultimate Swiss (laughs) Army knife of answers. Just fantastic. Kirby, before you go, I do have one more cheeky question without notice because we're talking Mm -hmm. today about embarrassing moments, and I'm asking people to finish this sentence. This is embarrass. This is embarrassing, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Do you dare? Oh, goodness. Um, oh, you really have put me on the spot. Yeah. I Daily, I do embarrassing things. <laughs> Absolutely daily. I can't even think of one that would be... I know oh, the well, feeling. The other night, I, yeah. um, I walked out to the Athenaeum Beautiful Heritage Listed Theatre. They were fixing up some bathrooms in the dress circle, which prior to our opening, uh, were we were able to use as the cast. There's a little sneaky door and they mm. said, oh, the audience aren't going to be using them so you can use them. And they forgot to tell us that the audience were using them now. So at intervals, I may have ruined the magic for some audience members when I walked out in my underwear because I, I just had a, like a little robe and just quickly to go into the bathroom in interval, but still in my wig and walked out and just absolutely exposed myself to maybe about 20 women lining up for the bathroom. And so of that's course, probably embarrassing with enough. your hearing aid, you could hear all their gasps in extra volume Absolutely. Now. And this wonderful woman in line for the bathroom just very quietly says, you're doing a wonderful job. <laughs> Growing up on the Mornington Peninsula, like an hour south of Melbourne, around the bay, when we were learning how to drive, we always felt a little bit smug because there was a generally accepted understanding that it was a lot easier to learn to drive in a semi-regional area because it just wasn't as busy. Like, I never had to do a hook turn to get my licence. You know, I learned in future. I think we could all probably benefit from having a a second driver's test. I'm not putting this out there as like a policy. I'm not like, I don't want a headline out of this. But if, say, you hit the age of 40, I don't think it'll be a 50, I don't know. Sorry, Ross, my sound wizard, is looking offended. Okay, 75. When you get to 75, you have to sit another test? Wow, I'm digging myself into a hole. Let's cut this from the podcast, Ross. There's all these learner drivers, and it gives me an opportunity every day to be a better person because I drive along, they drive the other way, and there's lots of narrow streets in in our area. And now I'm the one who sort of pulls over and waves, saying, you go first, you come through, and I feel good all day, and I know they're grateful. Because that is such a beautiful, positive, selfless... No, it's not selfless, it's selfish. I want to be a better person. I want me to be a better person, and I want to feel it. Okay, snack packers, as I have never called you and never will again, it's time for us to cast our eye across history now. It's time for us to take a delightful stroll down the past less travelled with lawyer and political apparatchik and history enthusiast David Mejia Canales. David, where are we heading today? Well, we're not heading too far. We're heading to Sydney uh, on the 26th of May in 1971, where a British man uh, whose name is Peter Macari and one of his friends called Raymond Ponting, they called the Department of Civil Aviation to tell them that there was a bomb on a Qantas plane. And he told um, the department that there was a replica bomb in Locker 84 at Kingsford Smith Airport so that they would take him seriously. Oh, my goodness me. Well, it was quite it was quite remarkable um, that, you know, that this happened because, you know, the the police, um, well, the department took this this threat seriously. And when they turned up to Kingsford Smith Airport, Locker 84, they did find a bomb that was 
viable. It, it absolutely was a bomb. And Mr. Brown told the department that if the plane flew below 20,000 feet, the bomb would explode. And the plane only had six hours of fuel left and the passengers had absolutely no idea that this was happening. Well, that is, I guess, one uh, good news part of the story so far. So the, the passengers were completely blissfully unaware. Yeah, that's right. I think only the pilot was told and they, they the plane was on its way to Hong Kong, I believe, or Singapore. And then uh, it started to, uh, it, it just returned back towards Sydney and that people were told that it was because of a, a technical issue, which I guess is not a lie, um, but it needed, that, that lie probably needed a little bit more context. So what then happened? So after the police found um, the, the bomb in the locker, they, they actually detonated it, uh, determined that it was a viable bomb. And inside the locker, there, was, there were a couple of letters. One of them was for Qantas, demanding a ransom of half a million dollars. And another letter was for the captain of, of the plane, which is a bit absurd, but, you know, I guess maybe polite to let them know that, that you know, you, you're, you're in the middle of this, this incredible bomb hoax. And Qantas, you know, took it very seriously. And they put the ransom money, the half a million dollars, which in 1971 was a whole lot of money. Yeah, and it's a, a little bit of the Austin Powers sort of thing here, where it sounds like a gorgeously small amount these days. That's right. That's right. It doesn't sound like a lot. I mean, you couldn't even buy a house in Melbourne for that. <laughs> but but um, so they put this money in a, in two suitcases, which is what Mr. Brown asked them. And, and um, Peter Macari, the 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 British man, he, he kept on referring to himself as Mr. Brown. Mm-hmm. And the, the most absurd thing was that Mr. Brown said to Qantas, I'm going to turn up in a yellow combi van and I'm going to shake my keys at the window so you know it's me because, you know, they obviously didn't know what he looked like. <laughs> yeah. And that's exactly what happened. Mr. Brown turned up to Qantas HQ in a combi wearing a fake moustache, a wig <laughs> and fake glasses and because the police that were waiting around Qantas HQ, they weren't told the money exchange was going to happen, he got away with it. This is crazy. And so at what point he took the money and then... So uh, he later advised Qantas that, no, actually, in fact, there is no bomb on this plane. Have a good time. And it was a couple of months uh, that there was an enormous manhunt that was launched. I mean, this man just wearing a fake wig... Uh, and and glasses got through a police cordon because the police had no idea it was happening, and the the manhunt took months. And the one one of the main reasons why they found him is because his associate uh, Raymond Pointing he he used to work at a bar, and all of a sudden he started driving an E-type Jaguar, and people got a little bit suspicious that this this young man who worked at a bar all of a sudden could drive a Jag. <laughs> Okay, so listen, if you're just tuning in, David Mejia Canales is taking us through the tale of Mr. Brown, which was the alias of Peter Macari, who put a replica real bomb in a locker, told Qantas there was a, a replica bomb on a plane. There wasn't in the end, but that was only established after he'd turned up in a yellow combi to take half a million dollars and flee. Correct? Correct. I mean, it sounds so absurd, and this absolutely happened. Now... Um, Mr. Brown uh, was arrested uh, along with Raymond Pointing. And what had happened is that uh, Mr. Brown had stashed half of the money behind a bricked up fireplace and underneath some floorboards in two separate houses in, in, in Sydney. The other half of the money was 
never found and it's suspected that it it may be hidden underwater of Bondi Beach. I don't know if that's true, <laughs> but I mean, if, if if you've got some time and opportunity, then I guess uh, I guess that's Go your next it. treasure hunt. And yeah, just quickly because we only got a couple of seconds. But what happened to Mr. Brown? Well, remember, Mr. Brown was British, and he was deported back to Britain on a Qantas plane. <laughs> well, I guess what could have been a horrific story ended up as you know quite the quite the humorous jaunt, David. The flying roo wins every time. That's it, friends. I'm sure you've got other things to do now, so I won't keep you for long. Thank you, as always, for subscribing. Give it a little review if you'd like to, or tell your friends, or just tune in to my breakfast show on ABC Radio every morning from 5.30 via the ABC Listen app. Thank you to my breakfast team and my producer extraordinaire, Ross Kavanagh, for stitching the pod together each week and doing so with care, love and skill. Drive safely, my friends. Oh dear, I've locked myself in the car. Oh, I, I dropped the keys out the window, but it's one of those automatic ones and I can't get out. Hello? I'm, I'm... Hello? <clears throat> okay, I'll just stay here till, till next week.